Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tollest, and this week we're investigating the crisis in the UK's justice system, with huge backlogs in Crown and civil courts, a lack of lawyers and judges, along with overcrowded and understaffed prisons. With me to discuss this, we have David Gork, former Conservative Justice Secretary, Victoria Gethin, Head of Family Law at legal firm Stevenson's, Rob Priest from the prison campaign group, the Howard League for Peel and Reform, and Richard Atkinson, Vice President of the Law Society and a criminal defence solicitor. So I'm going to start with, with you, Richard. You know, what's the kind of situation at the moment with the the backlogs in the courts? We know that obviously they were massively increased during the pandemic and obviously with the barrister strikes last year. Kind of where are we and where are we with the government's plan to try and bring those backlogs down? It's sad to report that we are at a position where the backlogs are growing and not shrinking, where we have somewhere about 65,000 cases waiting for the Crown Court and somewhere over 300,000 cases in the Magistrates Court. We've seen a 15,000 increase in cases in the Magistrates Court over the past 12 months waiting to be dealt with. So we're in a very parlous position and one that at present isn't improving. How is it kind of trending essentially and and those measures the government talked about, you know, improving sitting days and that sort of stuff, is that having any impact so far? It's having an impact in that more work is being done, but what we are seeing, the other trend that we're seeing is much more work going into the system than from before the pandemic. And so we're seeing more and more cases going in. So for example, in my own particular part of the country, we've seen a 44% increase in the number of cases going into the system on the 2019 pre-pandemic levels. And that's clearly making it extremely difficult for the system to cope. A system that was already under stress Mm. has become even more stressed in the present circumstances. Yeah. Uh, Victoria, bring you you in your head of family law. What's the kind of situation in the courts and the cases that that you deal with? I think whilst the family justice system is working well in many different ways, I think all involved in the system will concede that it's overstretched and there are significant delays and a lack of resources, which has a significant impact on families and children. In August this year, the Law Society produced a press release in response to data from CAFCAS, the Children and Families Court Advisory and Support Service, who advise the family courts about the welfare of children and what's in their interest. And the data showed that the children who are the subjects of care proceedings and therefore may have been removed from their parents, the states having to intervene due to concerns about neglect or abuse, having to wait an average of 46 weeks to get a final decision about where they will live. England and Wales is divided into different geographical areas which are managed and led by designated family judges and worryingly in 13 out of the 42 designated family judge areas the weight was double the recommended government target of 26 weeks. Hmm. That 26 week time frame is enshrined in law. The court may extend the time frame but only where it's absolutely necessary to do so. It was introduced in 2014 due to a huge backlog and when it was introduced with a concerted effort, there was a big reduction in the duration of cases. But then there was an increase in these types of applications. I think it was around about 25% rise. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. So whilst more recently there's been a slight reduction, the long-term trend over the last five years has been an increase in the number of cases. 
the presidents of the family division, Sandra McFarlane, acknowledges that the backlogging in the family courts continues whilst we're continuing to recover from the pandemic. The family court was able to continue working and quickly transition to remote working arrangements. But there's still a backlog of cases. And that seems to be partly yeah. from the difficulties in finalising cases in a timely manner. And I think the reasons for that are multifaceted and complex. It comes from societal issues and socioeconomic issues, often complex issues arising from poverty, mental health issues, substance and alcohol abuse and domestic abuse, and cases where parents themselves have often suffered neglect. And I think with changes in society, the cases become more complex over time. And we've seen an increase in cases involving, for example, organised crime gangs and very troubled teenagers who are vulnerable to sexual exploitation and criminality as well. And it's against a backdrop of serious resource issues as well and a lack of preventative support. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think we'll come back on to kind of the, that hidden aspect of exhaustion. The family courts are really underreported. Only recently, people like me, journalists, are able to actually report on the proceedings and that sort of stuff. And I think it's there's kind of hidden harms. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But, but Rob, the kind of the knock-on effect, obviously, is that we're seeing in prisons. What the kind of the prison numbers at the moment? Because we were understanding earlier this autumn that we were effectively hitting that ceiling of total prison population numbers kind of where are we and, and again how has it got to this point that we're topping out at that at that level when we keep hearing from the government they're, they're building more prison places we're just under eighty-eight thousand at the moment in prisons england and wales and certainly some of the issues that we've already heard described have contributed to that we have seen as cases have, have been log jammed in the courts mm. more people spending time in prison on remand awaiting trial yeah. or sentence that's currently at its highest level for at least 50 years Looking across the piece, there are just over 120 prisons in England and Wales today. Two-thirds of those prisons are holding more people than they're designed to hold. And there are some extreme cases. Listeners might recall um, an escape from Wandsworth Prison in September. At the time of that incident, the prison was supposed to be holding no more than 950 men. It was actually holding in excess of 1,600 men. And that's a, wow. an indication of just how much pressure the system is under. Combined with overcrowding, we have staff shortages, chronic staff shortages. It's been very, very difficult to recruit new staff. And in some prisons, actually more staff are leaving than are joining the service. And that's been a real headache for governors. And the knock-on effect of that is that if there aren't enough staff working on the wings, and if there are so many people in cells that they're sleeping two to one, you know, in cells designed for one person are holding two people, that's a really bad combination because it means that there isn't enough of a workforce to safely unlock cell doors, escort people to education, training, exercise, work, all the things that people would be expecting to be going on in prisons if we're to help people to turn their lives around. And so consequently, we've got people spending up to sort of 23 hours a day locked inside their cells without anything to do, and then being released from prisons without having been given the appropriate support. Lots of concerns and... You know, the government has been forced to make some changes quite recently, some quite unlikely changes so close to an election, you might think, to think about the political dimension, but nevertheless yeah. really important because there really is no room at the inn anymore. David, um, I said you were Justice Secretary and your colleague, your former colleague, Alex Chalk, has now taken that job. There's quite a lot in his intro when he took over. You know, what, what have you kind of made of what's happened in your old department? And, and kind of were the seeds of it? Did you see that when you were there in 2018 and, and 2019? And, and how has it kind of got worse in that period? Obviously, I said the pandemic had a huge effect on, on both those aspects we're talking about. But, you know, how have we got to this point, really, do you think, that, that now we're, we're facing these, these kind of twin track of, of big problems, both in, in the courts and in prisons? Well, I think I think there are a number of factors. I mean, first of all, it does have to be acknowledged that the 
MOJ and the the agencies under the MOJ, their their budgets were very tight yep. after 2010. They were cut, and in places, I think that did go too far. And some of that was was subsequently reversed. But nonetheless, for example, prison officer numbers. But nonetheless, that was very tight. Second, clearly, the pandemic has been enormously disruptive, and that has caused additional difficulties. I think a third point I would say is that one of the consequences of the increase in police numbers is that that then feeds through into demand in the criminal courts and indeed the prisons. It was always my view, if you're going to increase prison numbers, you need to look at the criminal justice system as a whole. You can't just expand numbers in one area and hope that the rest of the system will carry on working. And uh, when it comes to prison places as well, you know, this is there is a long term trend, which is to increase the length of prison sentences, particularly for more serious offenders. Yeah, that not straight away after a change of approach, but over time will just add to the pressures all the time. And we're starting to see the consequences of that. And that is why there are enormous sort of stresses and strains. You, you mentioned Alex Chalk. I, I think actually, Alex is a, a, a very sensible, pragmatic figure, trying to address many of these concerns, taking some decisions that are quite politically brave, as, as Rob hints at. But yeah. necessity is the is the is the mother of pragmatism here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, so some of the announcements in terms of short sentences coming from mm. both him and the sentencing council are sensible, but they are not going to solve all the problems. And if you look at what's going to happen in future, then there are plenty of reasons to be concerned about uh, the system. Yeah, we'll come on to kind of where those kind of investment problems, where, where it kind of lands. But uh, you know, as you talked about then, the, kind of the, the spending on courts has, has declined massively, I think, in the the 2021 spending review, I think the MOJ had a 4% increase in spending, but obviously that high inflation means that that's affecting our real terms cut. And the NHS and the schools had their budgets increase in 2022 to account for inflation. The MOJ didn't. And it feels as though it's it feels it's easier to go. It's not protected in the way that the NHS and the MOD and, and the aid spending is. And it always feels like it's a bit of a... You know, we always kind of... We, when you were in that, did you feel that, that kind of the pinch always fell across your department as opposed to others? Yes, very much so. The the difficulty here is that, you know, to be blunt about it, there isn't the political pressure to spend more on the criminal justice system as there is on health and education. Yeah. If you are the justice secretary, you haven't got the political levers that exist in some other departments because it is not something that the the general public face on a day-to-day basis, at least that's what, how they perceive it. You have to you have to win on other arguments, and 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 to be honest, it's only when matters get really bad and the fear of of the system crumbling mm. is there. A or when we see prison escapes, like we did, obviously earlier. In the, exactly. When you see moments like that, and 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 um, I mentioned earlier when we increased the number of prison officers in 2016, when Liz Truss was the justice secretary and she lobbied for that, and I was chief secretary at the time, and I was supportive of it, and and her strongest argument was that, look, we, we are close to the system getting completely out of control. Yeah. If you have a series of prison riots, you know, you, you, you could end up with deaths of both prisoners and prison officers. Uh, you could have a huge amount of physical damage to, to, to prisons and take them out of action. And then it becomes sort of politically 
very, very difficult as well. So you, know, you needed to increase the number of prison officers to try and get control of those prisons back to avoid a disaster. Yeah. But, you know, the, the brutal political fact is you know, the imperative is about avoiding a disaster, you know, making it a priority to kind of say, right, this is what we're going to do to rehabilitate offenders. Yeah, yeah. there's no kind of sense of that progressive reforms. It's about making sure we don't have those problems. Yeah. Richard, you, you mentioned your first answer about kind of the... The, the problem with not enough trials are getting, are getting through like is, is there a problem with efficiency in getting trials sorted and is that leading to some of the problems with the backlogs i understand that the, the figure for for cases you know actually having to be rescheduled is, is increasing is increasing and is that down to lack of judges or lack of lawyers we obviously had the barrister strike about pay and stuff is that what's leading to these problems that actually the the, the courts are not as efficient as they were pre-pandemic as well it's certainly the case that cases are now routinely being called for trial and there are insufficient advocates to cover those cases. When I started my career, that was unheard of. It would have been an exceptionally rare occasion when someone had suddenly gone ill or hadn't turned up for a case not to go ahead for a lack of an advocate. It's now commonplace. My local Crown Court, I think it's one in nine trials that are called on, fail to go ahead for a lack of an advocate. I personally had a case this week, long-standing case, allegation of rape, no prosecutor available to prosecute the trial. It's gone off until September next year. So yes, there are real issues around resources and lack of lawyers, something that, of course, the former Lord Chief Justice raised in his report to the House of Lords that his major concern about addressing the backlogs was the shortage of specialist criminal law solicitors and, and barristers. And that is absolutely an issue now. Uh, and it's coming home to roost as far as the lack of investment over decades in criminal legal aid, leading to real shortages that are causing delays in the courts. And in the police stations, I have police officers, senior police officers speaking to me about having to bail suspects because they can't get a solicitor to the police mm-hmm. station to cover an interview because of the lack of duty solicitors in certain parts of the country. So the shortage of specialist lawyers is a real issue and is now starting to impact on the efficiency of both the courts and the police in being able to deal with cases. Yeah. Victoria, Richard talked then about the kind of long-term issues. You mentioned your first answer about that legal situation being brought in in 2014 because there were backlogs then. So obviously that, that was you know 10 years ago. This obviously has been building towards it. What has been kind of the main driver in those kind of that backlogs that we saw you know 10 years ago, and what's kind of made it worse now? And and if you can just give us kind of examples of of how that affects people who are having to go through the family court system. I don't think the family profession seems to suffer from some of the same difficulties as the criminal systems in as just described by Richard in terms of a lack of specialist lawyers. However, I am concerned that that will begin to start to creep in because legal aid rates have remained static for over a decade in the family system. And therefore, we're not going to attract the same talent, particularly in relation to legal aid cases. I think some of the factors are that there's significant pressures faced by all professionals involved in these proceedings. So, for example, social workers is a highly pressured job. Most would consider it's underpaid and the attrition rates are very high. And for those leaving the profession or taking on other roles, this can impact on deadlines where assessments may have been ordered to be filed by the court by a certain date 
but then there's non-compliance with the court orders as a result. And in my experience, this is a common reason for delaying proceedings as local authorities who are significantly under-resourced cannot always arrange assessments or assessments of an appropriate quality in a timely manner. In addition to that, there's a dire shortage of specialist placements for some of the very troubled teenagers we see who may be beyond parental control. There's been a number of judgments where the senior judiciary have expressed concern about the chronic problems with the lack of availability of placements. This can result in numerous court hearings where local authorities are desperately trying to manage the situation and having to frequently update the court. I think in a very recently published case in October, there were seven available secure beds um, for children available nationally. Only one of them was male, but with 48 referrals pending. I think the family court is doing all that it can to ensure that cases are resolved in 26 weeks. There's been a call for the strict implementation of the public law outline, which is prescriptive about the number of required hearings taking place and only having fewer hearings and only within hearings focusing on the very key issues in order to resolve the proceedings. But with the best of intentions, that doesn't prevent a timetable being derailed if, for example, the key social workers had to leave. And I don't think we can, you asked about the impact on families and children, and I don't think we can underestimate the impact. The very first section of the Children Act, which governs these types of proceedings, is that delay will prejudice the child's welfare. And given that the child welfare is of course paramount concern it's a very significant issue it may mean for example that in public law proceedings a child may be in an interim foster placement whilst decisions are made about where they should live in the long term for a much longer period than is necessary and it's difficult to imagine the impact that the delay has on children in terms of their sense of permanence, stability, and the effects can be profound. These are already very vulnerable children who will have already suffered parental neglect or abuse. And for older children who have some understanding of what's happening, it can be very distressing, but also for younger children who can't make any sense of it. It will also um, have an impact where there's, for certain children, there's no alternative other than adoption. The delays can have an adverse effect on their chances of being adopted as a prospect of identifying an adopted placement reduced as a, as a child grows older and also impacts on their ability to settle within those placements in the longer term as well, having had such prolonged uncertainty. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's kind of an underreported factor, isn't it? Because obviously it's not as open to be reported on by people like journalists and stuff. It does kind of go under the radar a bit. Rob, coming back to the stuff we're talking about prison places, well, as, as David mentioned, the government went on this big drive to increase police officers. They, they, they claimed last year they hit their extra 20,000, but this extra 20,000 prison places that was going to go alongside it, it, sort of, we kept getting these announcements in 2021 and 2022 of X amount of money for these prisons and extra places. How many extra places did they actually, have they actually got to building and how much of it is, it's meant to be in the mid-2020s, how far in the future will it take for them to hit that figure? And obviously by that point, where will we be in terms of the numbers in prison as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is it shouldn't automatically follow that more police officers leads to more people going to prison. I mean, there no. are there are some steps in between where interventions could take place that could prevent that from happening. But David's absolutely right to raise the possibility that the prison population will need to grow or is likely to grow when, when more bobbies are on the beat, as it were. In terms of the government's prison building programme, I think it's something in the tune of £4 billion. It's a lot of money. Yeah, there have been problems. We've got a few new prisons that have opened up, um, five wells. 
there's another prison, Fosway, uh, and there's another one in, in the York area that's cl- close to being opened, I believe. But there are others, one at Gartree in Leicestershire that the government's been trying to build. They've been mired in a big planning inquiry there and elsewhere. And, and I think that's the, that's the issue. It looks good on paper from the government's perspective to promise these places, but they have to be built somewhere and people live in those places. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Certainly against the backdrop of a, of a high-profile escape from Wandsworth Prison in September this year, people do not like the idea of having a prison built on their doorsteps. Now, attempts have been made to talk about the sort of economic benefits of having uh, more jobs and everything else, but there's also considerable pressures on public services around prisons. You know, if um, if you have those riots that Liz Truss was worried about in 2016, then that's a, a huge burden on blue light services going in and out of the site. And we know that there have been very high levels of self-harm and violence in prisons because of that overcrowding and staff shortages leading to a, a, a growing tension within the system. So the government is having some trouble to build the prison places it promised. And David rightly identifies that a large part of the reason for the demand is sentence inflation, the, the fact that sentences are getting longer and longer. And so it's really important to see some attention paid there. Um, you yeah. cannot go on cramming more and more people into the system without any thought for the consequences. And I think, you know, residents locally have been very well organized and they've made objections to their local planning authorities and said, actually, enough's enough. Is enough being done to prevent people coming into prison in the first place? Why is it we need to build more jails on our doorstep and what will that mean for us? Richard, as we talk about kind of the, the issues around courts, so not just about the numbers of lawyers but also magistrates magistrate uh, hiring was was frozen and i think in 2022 there was fewer than half the number there were in, in 2011 obviously there was a big campaign to to boost the magistrates but those kind of magistrate numbers they're a lot lower than they had been and what kind of effect has that had necessarily on getting stuff done i know the magistrates court actually have dealt with their backlogs a bit better than crown courts but what's the kind of a wider effect that that has had i haven't seen or heard of an impact on cases through lack of magistrates There is, however, a a real impact on the lack of legal advisors where we're seeing really significant strain because they're simply unable to recruit. I know in the southeast there was a recent recruitment campaign where they failed to recruit a single additional legal advisor. And that is impacting. That is meaning that courts cannot sit because they don't have a legal advisor. And so I would say the greatest impact is is there with the lack of legal advisors rather than the lack of magistrates. Mm. Back then on, on, on the legal advisor thing, we obviously had the, the barristers strike. Obviously, the government is quick to blame some of the backlogs on the, the barristers strikes and, and the issues there. But actually, the strikes came about because of issues over funding, as we talked multiple times in this podcast about legal aid, now that the deal was struck, it doesn't necessarily mean that things are all rosy in the garden with with barristers and and, and with this kind of situation. What does the government need to do to kind of, in 2024, to to kind of improve the service and get those backlogs down? Obviously, I speak for solicitors, so you're right that a deal was struck. But as far as my side of the profession is concerned, we are a long way from there. And um, next week, we start a judicial review of the Ministry of Justice for their failure to implement Lord Bellamy's review, in which he said there needed to be an increase of a minimum of 15%. The Ministry of Justice gave the the advocates the bar 15%, but only offered solicitors nine. Hmm. They've subsequently said you can have another two next year. But that's not sufficient, um, and it's bemusing as to how it is they've decided to reject the recommendation of their own report from an independent chair 
who is clearly sufficiently respected that's now been invited to be a minister in the government, in the Ministry of Justice. They've effectively rejected his proposals, which were given in the strongest terms that this is the minimum necessary to keep the system going. And of course, since that report and since that recommendation, we've had a cost of living increase of some 17.5%. And there's been no additional increase. So the position is very much going backwards at the moment. And with the recruitment crisis and retention crisis for criminal legal aid solicitors, it's very hard to see how um, there is an easy route out Unless the government's prepared to fund the legal aid system, then matters will only get worse. Mm. For one example, you know, well known, but in North Devon, which is a huge area, um, there is but one duty solicitor now. One duty solicitor to cover the whole of North Devon, 24 hours a day, 365 days a week. That's where we're heading. We are in crisis. We're not heading towards it. We are in crisis in areas. There are three duty solicitors in West Wales, for example, another huge area. Uh, Last summer, that meant that the court had to rise early to allow the duty solicitor to go to the police station to represent a suspect there. Because although all of my colleagues are extremely talented, the one thing we haven't yet mastered is how to be in two places at once. (laughs) And therefore, um, it was a choice between having a solicitor represent a suspect with a a pace clock running in a police station or to appear in court to represent defendants there. And the option was to finish court early, obviously with the consequence that those cases weren't dealt with, resources that were allocated that day by courts and CPS were wasted through a lack of duty solicitors. And this is an issue that is now growing. The average age is over 50. The numbers are dropping. We've seen Since 2017, 25% reduction in the number of duty solicitors. This is a real crisis, one that needs to be met by funding. Yeah, David, just before we wrap up, then we'll go to each of you about what needs to be done. Obviously, it talks a lot about funding and the way that the MOJ has not been able necessarily to open the purse strings at the Treasury in quite so much. Obviously, as, as you say, you worked at the Treasury as well. You know, Alex Chalk, as you say, has, has, has been making some reforms. He's been, seems to be doing quite a good job by the profession, I think. But how does he kind of get that money across? How do, the, how do they to open the purse strings again to try and get some of this stuff moving? Because, you know, as we pointed to, an election is going to be coming in the next in the next year. How does that happen? And, and what's kind of the, the political argument that, that Alex Chalk can make that why it's so necessary to get that funding to be able to bring these, to sort these measures out? Well, first of all, it is a very difficult environment and you have got a government that is trying to prioritise delivering some tax cuts rather than higher public spending. Mm. As I say, you don't have kind of big political forces, you know, public opinion behind you at the MOJ. Uh, I think you have to persuade the Treasury, first of all, that it is imperative that, that without additional resources, you will have a bigger problem down the line. You have to demonstrate that you are spending the money wisely that that does mean that sometimes you have to accompany any additional money with reforms uh, sometimes you know, you've got to push for efficiencies and new ways of working and use of technology even when that might not be necessarily popular with the professions but you have got to show that it is both you know necessary and going to be spent wisely and will be a, a essentially a good investment yeah, And those are the arguments that you have to run with the Treasury, because, as I say, unlike some other areas, 
there aren't that many votes that get swayed by uh, the criminal justice system unless things have gone very, very badly wrong. Yeah, exactly. That's why it is quite a tough job. But I think, yeah, Alex Chalk actually is someone who does care about using taxpayers' money wisely, is prepared to be strategic. But particularly in the year running up to a general election, yeah, that can be quite difficult. Yeah. Victoria, then what's the what's the one thing you'd like to see from government and from the MOJ in the next year to try and fix the problems that, that you've been talking about in, in the family courts then? I mean, it's more fundamental maybe than just the next year. Yep. It's about, in terms of general investment, I think it's about better direction of funds with investment in preventative services. It must be the way forward so that families can be helped before they even reach a point where the situation is so dire that the local authority is having to intervene and issue care proceedings to seek removal of the children. So again, as I mentioned before, that includes provision of mental health services, substance and alcohol services and domestic abuse services and ultimately better direction of costs in these areas will ultimately save significant costs in the form of court applications and all the ancillary costs relating to that whether it be judiciary or representatives as well. I mean I think unless we tackle the issues um, within the family arena then more children will suffer harm and therefore have poorer outcomes potentially ultimately ended up in criminality and in prison and therefore perpetuating this cycle that we're describing. Mm, interesting and, and Rob I suppose for you as well last word to, to you on this that, that for prisons it isn't necessarily just about that short-term funding because it takes a long time for that stuff to pull through is it perhaps more a political issue perhaps you know shorter sentencing and, and, and dealing with perhaps more stuff outside of prisons and probation services rather than necessarily trying to sort of a quick fix to try and help with the, the prison overpopulation Yes, I have a short-term wish and a long-term wish, I think. The short-term wish is that there's a sentencing bill that's been introduced in Parliament. I'm a bit fearful of how volatile things are at Westminster right now. Will that bill make it over the line? If it does, Mm. then it will include a presumption against short sentences of 12 months or under. Those sentences would be suspended. And I don't want to see that because it might bring some ease to to prisons, although that would be a good thing. It's because it's actually the right thing to do. The Ministry of Justice's own evidence suggests that Community sentences are more effective in terms of reducing reoffending than short time um, spent in prison. My long-term wish is to look at everybody else in prison. And I think it's right to say that short-term sentences are important, that we see some action there, but they will not uh, bring about the fundamental reduction in prison numbers that we want to see if we're to um, have, a, have a growing, thriving economy where people are safe. We want to see more action and more attention paid to longer sentence prisoners as well. And I think, frankly, we need to have an honest discussion, all parties with the public and significant uh, interested parties, about who we send to prison and for how long and to have a sort of fundamental reset of the system because we currently have more people in prison than any other country in Western Europe. Uh, And it doesn't need to be that way. The prison population has doubled since Thatcher's time. We could do things differently. And what I would like to see is that £4 billion being spent on new prisons actually being directed to hospitals, schools uh, and creating jobs in in other industries. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link on our homepage. Thanks to my brilliant guests, David Gork, Victoria Gethin, Rob Priest and Richard Atkinson. Thanks all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tollhurst and this has been The Rundown.